There's a country singer by the name of Chris Young. I actually like his voice, and he has a song called I Hear Voices. Maybe you've heard the song before. Here is a snippet of some of the lyrics within the song. He says, you could say I'm a little bit crazy. You could call me insane, walking around with all these whispers running around here in my brain. I just can't help but hear them. Man, I can't afford it. I hear voices. I hear voices. Like my dad saying, work that job, but don't work your life away. And mama telling me to drop some cash into the offering plate on Sunday. That's that cultural Christianity. Like my dad saying, quit that team and you'll be a quitter for the rest of your life. And mama telling me to say a prayer every time I lay down at night. And grandma saying, if you find the one, you better treat her right. Yeah, I hear voices all the time. He says, sometimes I try to ignore them, but I thank God for them. They make me who I am. And so he hears voices, obviously from his upbringing. Well, this morning, we're going to hear some voices from Revelation chapter 14. So turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 14 as we continue our study of the book of Revelation. And you'll notice up on the screen, just to give you a little bit of an overview, a bird's eye view of the book of Revelation. In chapters 1 through 3, that's the church age. We looked at the message Jesus had for the seven churches in Revelation. And how long will the church age last? We don't know. The rapture is imminent. It can happen at any time. We're in this period right now in the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 19, which is the tribulation. We know that's going to last seven years. And then when you get to chapter 19 all the way to chapter 20, you have the return of Christ and the setting up of his thousand-year millennial kingdom. And then Revelation 21 and 22 talks about the eternal age, which is going to last forever. And so that's sort of a bird's-eye view of the book of Revelation. Now, when you look at the next slide, you will notice we've looked at the three types of judgments in the book of Revelation. The seal judgments were in chapter 6. And when the seventh seal is broken, that opens up the seven trumpet judgments. And when the seventh trumpet is blown, that unleashes the seven bowl judgments right before Jesus Christ comes back. Now, where does chapter 14 fit into this whole chronology? Well, as I mentioned to you, the seventh trumpet was blown in chapter 11. And when that seventh trumpet is blown, it unleashes the seven bowl judgments. But we don't get to the seven bowl judgments to chapter 16. And so between chapter 11 and chapter 16, you have what is called a parenthesis or an interlude. It is sort of a, a pause or a break. It's kind of like when you're watching a movie and as the narrative is going along, they'll flash back into the movie and they'll say, one year prior. Well, that's what chapter 14 is. It's that interlude, it's that parenthesis, it's that pause to basically give us some of the details that are going on during the tribulation period. And what we see in chapter 14 are three voices that are going to speak during the tribulation period. Let's look at voice number one. It is the voice of the 144,000. Look at verses one through five. He says, then I looked and behold, the lamb that is Jesus was standing on Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is an earthly Mount Zion. That refers to Jerusalem because it's on a mountain. Or it can refer to Hebrews chapter 12, the heavenly Mount Zion. 
And so which one is it right in this context? I believe he's talking about the heavenly Zion. He says, behold, the lamb was standing on Mount Zion, that is the heavenly Zion. That would be when Jesus Christ comes back and he transforms the earth. And with him, notice the 144,000 who had his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. In other words, chapter 7 says they were sealed by God. And then notice verse 2. Here's the first voice. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And in verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one was able to learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are celibate. In other words, they're sexually pure, or it could mean that they're single. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were obedient disciples. These have been purchased from among mankind as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. In other words, they have been set apart. They're the first fruits of what God is going to do among the Jewish people during the tribulation. These 144,000 are set apart by God. They are sealed. They have the seal of God, whereas the Antichrist has his mark and his seal upon his followers. But these 144,000 are basically set apart by God, and they are the first fruits of the many that are going to get saved. And notice verse 5, and no lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. This doesn't mean they're perfect. It just simply means that they were committed to God. And so the 144,000 were first mentioned in chapter 7. There, God set aside 12,000 from each tribe, and basically they are male. Now we see them again here in chapter 14. They're first mentioned in chapter 7. Now they're here in chapter 14, and I believe in chapter 14, we're at the end of the tribulation here, and we see them in this heavenly Mount Zion. In other words, they've gone through the tribulation, God has preserved them, and now they're up in heaven, as it were, and they're rejoicing, and they're singing, and they're worshiping and praising God. And notice the five characteristics he gives about these 144,000. First of all, they were disciples of Christ. Secondly, they were single, celibate men. Thirdly, they lived pure lives. Fourth, they fulfilled their mission because they were the first fruits that God set aside, and the implication is God's going to use them to reach many for Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the final characteristic is they're standing on Mount Zion and they're singing in heaven. In fact, you'll notice the picture here. It says, as they're singing before the throne of God, they're before the four living creatures there on the front. And you'll notice the thrones seated around God there at the top in the middle. Those are the 24 elders, and you see the angels at the top there. And so these 144,000 are standing, as it were, before the throne of God, before Jesus Christ comes back to set up his thousand-year kingdom. And what are they doing? They are worshiping. They are singing a new song. Why? Only they could sing it. Because when they went through the experiences of the tribulation, God gave them a unique song that only they could sing and understand. And that's true, as Joel talked about earlier during worship, many times music comes out of the experiences that we go through in life. And so these 144,000 are worshiping God. 
And that's exactly what John hears. He hears all of these men, as it were, and by the way, this is not to say that women are not going to be used by God during the tribulation, that they're not going to have a role in heaven, but they are specifically set aside by God. They are a committed group of men that God is going to use in a unique way during the tribulation period, and they're going to make a tremendous impact. It kind of reminds me of the Moravians. How many have ever heard of the Moravians here? The Moravians came out of an individual by the name of John Huss. John Huss spoke the word of God about 60 years prior to Martin Luther, the German monk. And John Huss stood against the Catholic Church and he said, you're saved by faith alone. And they ended up burning him at the stake. In fact, his nickname was the Goose because they cooked him, as it were. And they basically thought they could stamp out Christianity But as a result, he developed a following, and that following was known as the Moravians. The Moravians continued to grow. Well, they got persecuted in their land, which was today modern-day Czech Republic, and because they were persecuted, they ended up fleeing to an area in Germany called Hernhut. And there was a man in Germany who basically ran this compound called Hernhut. His name was Nicholas von Ziesendorf. And he was a tremendous man of God. And he began to take the Moravians in. They remind me of the 144,000. And they lived on that compound. And one of the things that they did, they had struggles, but one of the things that they did was they had a 100-year prayer chain that took place. For a 100 years, they prayed continually. It was like a prayer chain. And as a result of the Moravian community that lived with Count Nicholas von Ziesendorf, They raised up 300 missionaries that went into North America and preached the gospel. In fact, the Moravians went to Georgia, and they influenced a man by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley wasn't converted to Christ. He went to Georgia to establish a mission in Savannah, and he basically left Savannah with his tail tucked between his legs because he really didn't have success. And while he was riding back to Europe, The Moravians were on the boat that he was on, and a tempest hit the boat and threatened to kill all of them. John Wesley was scared spitless, but he noticed the Moravians, they were worshiping and singing God, and that convicted his heart. And because of the Moravians, John Wesley got converted to Christ later on, and he became one of the greatest evangelists in North America and also England. And so the Moravians were sort of like this 144,000. They were set apart by God. And so John hears a voice from heaven. And what's the voice that he hears? He hears this 144,000. They were selected by God in chapter 7. They go through the tribulation. They carry out their ministry, and they follow Jesus wherever he goes. In other words, they were committed to Jesus Christ. They were true disciples, not like today. A lot of people today in America say that they're Christians. A lot of people, 80% identify with Christianity, but how many are really disciples of Jesus Christ? In fact, Frank said yesterday the word Christians only mentioned three times in the Bible, but the word disciple is mentioned 300 times. A disciple is a learner, a follower. 
one who obeys the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these 144,000 were true disciples. They were set apart by God. They were single, as it were, married to God. They were sexually pure. And here they are at the end of the tribulation standing on Mount Zion, the heavenly Mount Zion, and they're singing and they're worshiping God. Isn't that the great thing that when we go through tribulation, ultimately it's going to lead to worship towards God? That's exactly what God does in our life. And so you and I need to be like the 144,000, just like the Moravians were. They were sold out to God. And I don't know about you, but I know as I get older and my life gets shorter and shorter, I want to make as much of an impact as I can for Jesus Christ because I realize that life is short. It is a vapor. And what I do for Christ now is going to determine how I spend eternity, not in terms of my eternal destiny because that's been settled, but in terms of my reward. And so I want to labor for Jesus Christ. And so would you say this morning you're like the 144,000? Are you worshiping God on a regular basis through your life? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Not just a Christian who comes to church on Sunday, but are you a learner? Are you a follower? And listen, you know what you have to do? You have to settle that in your life. Because a lot of people want fire insurance. They want to come to know Jesus Christ, but they don't they don't drive a stake in the ground and say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to give myself to you lock, stock, and barrel. When I was in college, I had to make that decision because I was a born-again Christian in high school. I got saved. There was fruit in my life, but I wasn't fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I had one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity. And when I got to college, I began to party a little bit, and I knew the Lord was drawing me to himself. And so finally, I was in a bar having a beer and I was feeling a sense of unsettledness. And I said, all right, Lord, right now, I'm going to give my life to you. And I said, I'm going to follow you. And I remember sitting in my dorm, having a titanic struggle because I had to decide no more partying, no more going to the bars, no more carousing. I had to drive a stake in the ground and say, Jesus, I'm going to be your disciple. I'm going to be your follower, just like the 144,000. They aren't perfect. You and I aren't perfect. But listen, until you drive that stake in the ground, you know what's going to happen? You may be like a cultural Christian, especially in the South. There's a lot of cultural Christians in the South who profess Jesus Christ, who say they're believers, but they're not really disciples of Jesus Christ. A disciple is not going to be perfect, but a disciple is going to follow Jesus Christ. And so the verse voice that uh, we see here is the voice of the 144,000. The second voice is the voice of the angels, and there are five angels mentioned here in chapter 14. We hear the voices of these five angels. Notice angel number one, angel number one in verses six and seven. He says this, and I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. Now, angels obviously have been a factor throughout the book of Revelation, and here he sees this angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Now, why is God allowing this angel to preach the gospel and to warn? Well, some people believe that the church is not going to fulfill the Great Commission, and therefore God is going to have to use this angel in order to get the gospel out to complete the Great Commission. In fact, some people think that this flying angel actually is a metaphor for a satellite dish. In other words, God's going to use television to get the gospel out. Well, I think that's stretching it here because this is a real angel. 
And notice what this flying angel did in verse 7. And he said with a what? Say it out loud. Loud voice. You see the voice of the angel there? Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. Now remember, God has entrusted to you and I the gospel message. That's the primary vehicle through which God gets the message out as you and I. God could use angels, but he's chosen not to. But in this unique situation, God is allowing this angel to warn the inhabitants of the earth to fear God and basically to worship God who created the heavens and the earth. Why? Because many people during the tribulation period are going to fear the Antichrist. They're going to think the Antichrist is in control of the earth. They're going to think the Antichrist is king, and they're going to take his mark. And so this angel is preaching the gospel. Now, it's a gospel of warning here. Obviously, the angel is going to talk about the death and resurrection of Christ. That's not included here. This is just a summary. And the angel is saying, look, you see the devastation that's going on this earth? You see what God is doing to this universe? He's saying, don't worship the Antichrist and take his mark. You need to fear God, and you need to worship God because he is the creator, he is the redeemer, and he is the one that you are to worship. And so there is a warning here that this angel gives. And so when John hears the voice of this angel, he hears this warning. And you and I are to do the same thing. We're to share the gospel with other people, and we have the responsibility to warn other people about coming judgment. Now, obviously, we present the message in love. We present it in a spirit of grace. We talk about the love of God, the grace of God, but we also warn people of the judgment of God. When I was pastoring in New Jersey, we would go probably once a month to South Street in Philadelphia. It was about a 30, 40-minute drive. We would go into Philly, and South Street, about 9 or 10 o'clock, all the vampires came out. All right, it was a very strange area. There was a lot of restaurants, but you would get a lot of crackpots that would come out. But listen, that's the best place to reach sinners because you got a lot of drunk people, you got a lot of transvestites, you got a lot of homosexuals. And so we would go into Satan's den in order to reach people that Jesus died for. And I remember I was walking. I have it on video. I couldn't show it to you this morning. But as I was walking, several guys came out of a bar and one of them was drunk. And so I said, sir, do you mind if I ask you a question? He said, no. I said, if you were to die tonight, where would you spend eternity? And he said, well, you know, I don't know where I'd spend eternity. And so I started talking to him about the Lord, and we engaged for about 20 minutes. And he grew up in the church. And so when I ended the conversation, I said, dude, listen. I said, you need to get serious about this because there is coming a day of judgment. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you're going to be eternally separated from God. See, we have to warn people. We don't love people if we don't warn them. I know people today in the church don't want to hear about judgment, but as we read this whole chapter, we see judgment after judgment. And so that's part of warning people and loving people is reminding them that God is a God of judgment. And so we hear the voice of the first angel. The second angel is in verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, 
Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, this is a prediction of the fall of Babylon, which I'll explain in a minute. And by the way, this is going to be fulfilled, the fall of Babylon. You could read about it in Revelation 16 and also chapter 18. And so this second angel says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, the question is, who is this Babylon? Well, there's three possible options, really two, but you can add a third one. The first represents the Antichrist headquarters, which some commentators believe will be located in Babylon in Iraq. There are some commentators that believe that the Antichrist will set up his headquarters where Saddam Hussein used to be. And so what this angel is predicting is that the headquarters of the Antichrist, the religious, the political, and the economic uh, aspects of his kingdom located in Iraq is going to eventually fall. And we see that in chapter 18. The whole thing is going to come crashing down at the end of tribulation when Jesus Christ comes back. Another view is that it's not referring to Iraq in that area, and this is the view I hold, and it is this. Babylon is a symbol for any system that opposes God, and in this case, it would be the Antichrist system. And so what the angel is doing is warning of judgment. That first angel was saying, get right with God, fear God, he's the one who's the creator, and this second angel is saying, hey, Babylon is going to be destroyed. Come out of that system. It is the Antichrist system. It represents the religious system of the Antichrist mentioned in Revelation 17. It also mentions his economic system mentioned in chapter 18 of Revelation. And it represents all that the Antichrist is going to do. And so Babylon is a symbol of any system that opposes God. Now, why is it called Babylon? Because it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10. If you remember, my uncle Nimrod in chapter 10 is the one who started false religion. He's the one who built that tower in order to start a system that opposed God. It was a false religious system. It also was political. And so what we see is Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel, we see it come full circle with the Antichrist kingdom. And so this angel, we hear the second angel's voice, and what is this angel saying? He's saying, Babylon, Babylon is fallen, and here's the problem. Everyone has drunk of the wine of her adulteries. What does that mean? It means that people on the earth are going to commit spiritual fornication with the Antichrist system. Many people are going to take the mark. Many people are going to get involved in the religious apostasy during that time. That's what the word fornication means here. They're going to jump full uh, headlong into the Antichrist system, and therefore he's telling the believers, come out of that who are saved during the tribulation period, and listen, don't go into it. Now, obviously, we'll be raptured during that time, so we won't experience that. And so we've seen the first angel, the second angel's voice. Let's look at the third angel's voice in verses 9 through 12. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying, here it is, in a loud voice. There's the voice again. If anyone worships, now here's what the Greek says, if anyone continues to worship, you know what this implies? There's time to get right with God. There's time to repent during the tribulation. 
If people are in the system of the Antichrist called Babylon, if they are committing fornication with that system, this angel is saying there's still time to get out because it says if anyone continues to worship the beast and his image and receive a mark on his forehead or on his hand, which by the way, when you take the mark of the beast, it shows loyalty to the beast. And listen, there are different views on this. If you take the mark, can you be saved? Some say yes, you could come out of that and get converted and repent. Others would say no, once you take the mark, you seal your fate. You say, well, what is the mark? John talked about it a little bit last week, but if you notice the picture up here, you'll notice some people believe it's a chip that they're going to put in your hand. We don't exactly know what it is. It could be a barcode. We really don't have enough information, but the technology is moving in that direction. And he says, if anyone receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. In other words, if you take the mark, you are basically consigning yourself to hell. If you take the mark, you are declaring your loyalty to the Antichrist, and this is a very strong warning that you are not to take the mark because you will drink of the cup of God's wrath. In fact, the word cup is often used of God's wrath. Do you remember in the garden when Jesus said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me? You see, the cup there represented the wrath of God that was going to be poured out upon Jesus Christ. And so he says, if you take the mark, you're going to drink, verse 10, the wrath of God, which is mixed full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. You're going to suffer in hell eternally. In fact, God warned through the first angel and the second angel, and yet people during this time are not going to heed the warning. People ask the question, well, how can Jesus send people to hell? People are sent to hell because they reject Jesus Christ. Here, they were given the warning, and they didn't listen to the warning. And so they are reminded that they're going to suffer torment. And in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. In other words, you're going to suffer if you take the mark. Just like God set apart the 144,000 and they had the mark of God that showed that they belong to God, the Antichrist is going to have his mark and that's going to show that people are set aside for the Antichrist. And so this is a very stern warning. For those who get saved during the tribulation period or go through the tribulation, that they are not to take the mark. And as a believer, you are not to follow the Antichrist system. Now, we're going to be raptured out, so we won't go through this. However, there are many people that are going to be converted during the tribulation period. And there are going to be many people that are tempted to take the mark. Why? Because you cannot buy or sell. You know, it's easy now to say, well, I would never take the mark until your family is starving. If you have to feed your family, many times you will do things that you didn't think you would ever do. And so there's going to be a genuine temptation here. And so notice what he says to the believers here in verse 12. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying if you're a believer, if you're a believer, you need to keep your faith, you need to persevere, you need to stay committed to God, and you don't need to take the mark. 
Well, there's another angel. This is angel number four, and we hear his voice. Notice verse 14, then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man. This would refer to Jesus, and this harkens back to Daniel chapter 7. Son of man is a title for Jesus. And so Jesus is on a cloud here. Cloud represents judgment. And notice Jesus has a golden crown on his head, which speaks of his royalty, his kingship. And he also has a sharp sickle in his hand. Earlier, he talked about the cup of God's wrath. Now he uses a different image, which is a sharp sickle in his hand. And so you see it right here. Here's the sickle. Here's Jesus. And notice he's got a crown and he's got the sickle and he's coming back on the clouds of heaven. This is speaking of his second coming. And notice verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple. Here it is, calling out with a loud voice. This is the voice of angel number four. And notice when he called out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Here is what this angel said to Jesus in a loud voice. Put your sickle and reap. This would refer to the wheat harvest. In Israel, it was an agrarian society, and they would harvest grain and wheat in May or June. And so Jesus here is seen with his sickle as the great harvester. He says, for the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. In other words, the seeds of sin have been planted, and what has happened is they have matured, and now sin has reached a fever pitch during the tribulation period, and what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to harvest. In fact, harvest in the Bible is often used, like in Luke 9, to refer to reaching lost souls. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and so harvest can refer to reaching non-believers. But in Matthew 13, harvest also refers to God's judgment. And so in verse 16, then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. What is he talking about here? This angel is speaking in a loud voice to Jesus, who is sitting on a cloud, coming back at his second coming, and he's going to basically harvest the earth in judgment. If anyone tells you that Jesus is only love and he's not judgment, they're not giving you the full counsel of God. Jesus is love. He does not delight in the death of the wicked. But the Bible makes it very clear here that he is a God of wrath and he judges. And what is this judgment? Obviously, it's the seal judgments, it's the trumpet judgments, it's the bowl judgments. But here, the sickle represents his second coming when he comes back. Well, there's a fifth angel, and we hear his voice in verses 17 through 20. He says, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Verse 18, then another angel, the one who had the power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called, here it is, with a loud voice, there's another voice, to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. Now in the first sickle, that was the harvest where he basically harvested the grain as they would do in Israel for bread and for beer. Now in this image, this angel basically tells Jesus to take his sickle and he's not going to harvest wheat, he's not going to harvest grain, he's going to harvest grapes. 
Verse 19, so the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now here's this fifth angel, and he's basically giving a command to another angel to take the sickle and harvest the grapes. Now, my favorite juice out of any of the juices is Welch's grape juice. I could drink that every day. In fact, I could drink a gallon every day. I had to stop because of the sugar content. But what is he referring to here? Well, in that time, here's what they would do. They would take all these grapes after they would uh, harvest them with the sickle, and they would put them in what is called a vat. Here is one of them that they unearthed. And what they would do is they would step on those grapes. Somebody would go in there and step on them. And what would happen is they would have an area that the juice would flow out of. You could see it right here. It would flow out of. And basically, that's what they would use for grape juice. And ultimately, if it fermented, it would turn into wine. And so here's the image. And this fifth angel, he hears a voice, and he tells the other angel, take the grapes, harvest them, put them in the wine press, and God, as it were, is going to stamp in judgment upon the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, it's a word picture to talk about God's judgment that he's going to come upon this earth at the second coming and he's going to judge. Now, what specifically is he referring to here? He's referring to the battle of Armageddon because it says in verse 20, and the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came from the winepress up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 1600 stadia. In other words, let me show you these maps here. This will help you to understand. This area is where Armageddon is, okay? This is where the battle is going to be fought. Uh, from Megiddo up here all the way down to Edom, it's a 200-mile distance. The battle of Armageddon is not one battle. It is a campaign. And during this battle, you're going to have all the armies of the earth come together. Go to the next slide. And you will notice here... Uh, the coalition of nations that are going to converge upon Israel. Now, these nations here are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, um, the battle of um, Gog and Magog. Some would say that's a different battle. Others would say it's referring to Armageddon. So if you go to the next slide, you'll notice here you have the armies of the east coming in. You have uh, the king of the north, the king of the south, and they're going to converge in this area of Megiddo. Armageddon. Megiddo is a city. It's a city on a mountain, and you could overlook the valley of Jezreel. And so here, when he hears the voice of this angel, this angel is basically saying, take the sickle, harvest the grapes, throw them in the wine vat, and God's going to crush them. And you know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the battle of Armageddon. It's going to be a bloody battle. Why are these armies coming against Israel? Because they hate Israel. It's demonic. And when they come against Israel, what is God going to do? He's going to return in Revelation 19 at the battle of Armageddon, and he's basically going to destroy all those armies. And it says here that the blood is up to the horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. In other words, blood up to 200 miles long, and the blood will be four feet, six inches deep. Now, I don't think that's literal language. Remember, this is apocalyptic language. It's not saying that the blood is going to be that deep for 200 miles. 
what John is seeing here is a bloodbath that's going to take place during the Battle of Armageddon. And so we've seen the voice of the 144,000. We've seen the voice of these five angels. There's one more voice that we see for this morning, and that is the voice of the Spirit, the voice of the Spirit. Notice, if you will, verse 13. And here it is, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. So now we know who the voice is here. It is the Spirit. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow with them. Now, this is the third voice, and it's the voice of the Spirit, and it's a voice of encouragement, because a lot of Christians are going to suffer during the tribulation period. And he's saying, if you take your stand and you don't give into the Antichrist system, if you die, you're going to be blessed ultimately. See, we often look at death as a demotion, but it is a promotion to God. He says, you're going to rest if you die in the Lord. And listen, you're either going to be tormented during the tribulation period and stand for Jesus Christ, and you're going to be taken into eternal blessing, or you're going to give in temporarily to the Antichrist because you want to sell yourself to the devil. And he's saying, you may experience relief for a brief period of time, but when you die, you're going to be tormented eternally. So you got to pick what you want. And he's saying, if you stand for Jesus Christ, and you persevere, as he said earlier, and you hang in there. He says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. You're going to be blessed eternally. Yes, says the Spirit, you're going to rest from your labors, for their deeds will follow them. And I would say the same thing to us. You and I, this is our time of labor. This is our time of discipline. This is our time to serve the Lord, to sacrifice. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy life, but it simply means that we're focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are committed to him. We take a stand for Jesus Christ. And as America grows darker and darker, and persecution may come to this country, this type of test may be faced with all of us in this room. What are we going to do? Are we going to take our stand? That's why the majority of the church, probably more than half of the church, is going to fall away. Why? Because they're superficial Christians. They're not willing to take a stand. You say, well, what would you do, Pastor Mike? I don't know what I would do, but let me say this. My stand is for Jesus Christ, and I pray that when the test comes, I'm going to stand. Why? Because if I have to give my life for Jesus, or if I have to suffer serving him, it says here, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. And it says their deeds will follow them. What does that mean? You're going to be rewarded for your labor. And so listen, we don't sacrifice in vain. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because your labor is not in vain. We don't serve Jesus Christ in vain. We have to have that eternal perspective that basically serves the Lord in light of eternity. And so what is the voice of the Spirit saying here to these Christians and to you and I? Hang in there, keep serving the Lord, don't give in to the evil system. Keep following the Lord Jesus Christ, because if you give your life in martyrdom, you're going to be blessed, says the Spirit, and you're going to be rewarded by Jesus Christ. And so we've seen three voices this morning. Voice number one is the voice of the 144,000. And they're on Mount Zion standing with Jesus because they were faithful. And they're singing a new song, worshiping at the end of the tribulation on the heavenly Mount Zion. 
And then secondly, we heard the voice of the angels. There were five angels, and each of them gave a specific message to the people during the tribulation period. And if you were to sum up the message of the angels, here's what it is. Come out of the system. Don't love the Antichrist system called Babylon because that system is going to fall. And the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world and its lusts are passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You see, the Bible says the system in which you and I live is going to come to an end. It's ephemeral. It is temporary. And the angels are saying, come out of it. Not only now, but during the tribulation period. Why? Because the sickle of Jesus is going to come and he's going to reap the harvest. And then finally, we've seen the voice of the Spirit. So as we close, what should we do? Well, if there's anything, and there's many things we could talk about, we have a responsibility, listen carefully, to warn people. We have to warn. I close with this verse, very sobering verse. God said to Ezekiel, son of man, I've made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak, and look what he says to Ezekiel, give them warning. A watchman would stand up on the tower, and if he saw impending judgment or he saw an army coming, his job was to warn the people. And look at verse 8, spiritually speaking, when I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways. That wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Now, he's not saying here, if you don't warn people, you're going to end up being cast into hell. But here's his warning. He's saying, Ezekiel, if you don't warn the people of impending judgment, I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood. You are derelict in your duty. And I'm here to tell you, listen, 80% of the church is derelict in its duty. It's not warning people. We don't go up and grab people by the lapels and say, turn or burn, brother. We don't do that because that's not effective. It's not going to reach people. But listen, we have the responsibility to get the message out and warn people. And so, are you warning people in your family? Are you warning your coworkers? Are you warning your friends, your family? Do it in love, do it in grace. Timing is important, tactfulness is important, but listen, we must warn other people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of this message, these voices, the voice of the 144,000, the voice of these angels, and the voice of the Spirit. We thank you, Lord God, for reminding us of our duty and our responsibility and our privilege to be able to get the message out. And Lord, I pray that this would be a sober wake-up call, that you are a God of love, but you are also a God of wrath. You are a God of judgment. And Lord, our culture doesn't want to hear it, and even many church Many churches don't want to hear that message because it's not popular. It, it doesn't draw people in and grow the church, but it's the truth. And I pray that we would proclaim it boldly to others. Help us, Lord, to have humility, love, compassion. Help us, Lord, not to, not to joyfully preach judgment, but nevertheless to give the message. We thank you 
In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.